We're in Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to finish the book of Nehemiah. Next week, we're going to start 1 Thessalonians. If you want to start reading ahead, we're going to go through 1 and 2 Thessalonians uh, together. All right, let's pray together. Father, we celebrate your goodness, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for being patient with us and long-suffering. Thank you that you love us enough to confront us and, and challenge us and clean up our hearts, and we need that work. We want our hearts to be that fertile soil for your word, to be planted deep within us. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah had made a commitment back in chapter 2 that if King Artaxerxes allowed him to go and rebuild the wall around the temple, that he would return to serve King Artaxerxes. We now find that he has fulfilled that commitment and he's away from Jerusalem. While he's away, the children of Israel drift back into sin. It's a huge bummer for the book to end this way. It would be great if the book ended in chapter 12 with them being rededicated to God in Thanksgiving, but we find that they very quickly went back to sin. And Nehemiah comes and addresses that sin and, and cleans house. It does remind me of my brother and I uh, growing up. He's 22 months older than me, and we also have a younger sister that's nine years younger. And when my parents would leave my brother and I home alone, things got interesting really quick. And there was a lot of fighting. We would, we would fight with each other, and eventually we became best friends. But, man, we would duke it out and get into these fist fights. And before you know it, someone's locked outside, right? While my parents were gone, we would start our very early driving career at ages 12 and 10, getting, get out in the neighborhood, right? Mom and dad would come home and the Ford Fairmont would come down Meyer Drive and it was time to shape up. It was, it was time to, to behave because mom and dad were here. And that's almost where we find the children of Israel at. It's like, okay, here, here's Nehemiah. It's time to get our act together. It's, it's time to follow the Lord. And it really leads a deeper question in our lives that, that Paul challenged the church with and said, I want you to obey whether I'm absent or present. And sometimes we may have a mentor in our life, a spiritual leader in our life, and when we're around them, we're, we're, we're committed to the Lord, but then when we're not around them, we want to grow to that place where we're fearing God and we're, we're walking with Him. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moab should ever come into the assembly of God. Because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. On that day, they read from the book of Moses. It may have been the day that Nehemiah came and, and returned, and he said, guys, let's get back into the word of God. We're not sure exactly what that specific day was, but many times God begins to cleanse our lives, cleanse our hearts as we get into the word. As we read God's word, we're exposed to things that God is convicting and challenging and changing. 
And for the children of Israel, it was this issue of the Ammonites and the Moabites. When they were coming through the wilderness, instead of helping them and providing bread and water, they came against them. And they hired Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And God in his power and his sovereignty was able to take a cursing and turn it into a blessing. Isn't God good? I don't know if you've ever seen that in your life where someone has come against you and God ultimately is able to turn it into a blessing. But because of that, God said that no Ammonite or Moabite was to be part of the children of Israel, to be part of the congregation of Israel. But Israel has compromised on this, and as they're reading the word, then they respond to God's word. And that's what we hope and pray for in our lives, is as as we read God's word that we respond to it. We go, yes, Lord, you're right in this, and I allow you to do that purifying work in my life. One of the things that I'd like to examine a little bit uh, deeper in this is you might find yourself in a situation where you're married to an unbeliever, and you go, okay, they separated the Ammonites and the Moabites out from the children of Israel. This had to affect families. This had to affect marriages. And is it right for me to go ahead and divorce my unbelieving spouse? And 1 Corinthians 7 addresses this where, where God speaks to you and, and says, you're to stay in your marriage. If your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay in the marriage, you stay in the marriage for the hopes that your spouse and your children will be one to Christ. And we've seen God do a great work in people's lives as they're married to an unbeliever. And I know it's difficult to see that unbeliever come to know Christ as the Savior. If the unbeliever departs from the marriage, the scripture says you you have peace. If if they're wanting to leave, but you be the one that stays uh, committed in that marriage and pray that the Lord would would do a work. In verse 4, now before this, Eliashib the priest having authority over the storerooms of the house of God, was allied with Tobiah. What in the world's going on here? You've got the high priest who has the responsibility of the storehouse, and he's got an alliance with Tobiah. Tobiah is the enemy. Tobiah is the the one who has been coming against them all along to try to stop this building project. The enemy is deceptive and tricky. If he can't get us on a frontal attack, he'll oftentimes want to slip in the back door and form an alliance. And that's exactly what the enemy does here. The enemy's patient. The enemy's thorough. And we're not expecting for him to come in this way. Who, Who would think that the high priest would have an alliance with Tobiah? In verse five, and he prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine, and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offspring for the priests. The double evil of this is not only is there an alliance with Tobiah, but Tobiah has self-storage inside of the temple. He's found himself in the temple, giving a large room, and this room was to be set apart for everything that was necessary for worship, everything that was necessary for the Levites and all the sacrifices and the care of the temple and the singers. So they're literally giving over a room that was dedicated for worship to the enemy. 
In verse 6, But during all this I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king. Nehemiah wasn't around for this. He wasn't around for this allegiance that had been made. And he comes back in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. But we don't know how long he was gone. But he's now returned. And I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Nehemiah calls it what it is, evil. This was evil for Eliashib to do this and give this room over to the enemy. In God purifying our lives and cleansing our house, is there rooms that have been given over to the enemy that need to be taken back? Do we need to take back rooms that have been given to the enemy? What do I mean? Has bitterness come into our hearts? We're now the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we do store things in our hearts, don't we? Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We, we store these things in our hearts, and then eventually they're going to come out of our mouths, and someone has hurt you, they, they've wronged you, and this space that is to be given over to the Lord in worship has now been consumed with bitterness, and now has been consumed with, with anger. And this morning, the Lord wants to, to bring that to light. And you'll notice in verse 8 that Nehemiah was grieved bitterly over this, and he makes things right. The ultimate Nehemiah is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit grieves over sin in our lives. Not for condemnation, but so that we can experience God's best in our lives. We often don't think of God having emotion. We think God's emotionless. But we're created in God's image. And we have emotion. God has emotion. He's not fallen in his emotion. He doesn't sin in his emotion. But our sin affects the heart of God. It, it hurts God. And the Holy Spirit grieves over our sin. Also, we can quench the Holy Spirit we're finally able to get out some garden hoses in Colorado Springs. And with those garden hoses, sometimes they get kinked, don't they? And the water gets shut off. And that's what we want to do to the work of the Spirit, unfortunately. We, we quench the Holy Spirit. We stop listening to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Some of you this morning may be saying, I'm not really open to the conviction of the Spirit. I'm not open to God cleaning out my heart. I'm going to hold on to this area of bitterness. It might be covetousness. Interesting question to ponder is, when is it enough? If you have $20, you want $40. If you have $2,000, you want $4,000. If you have $20,000, you want $40,000. When is it enough? If you live in this size of house, it's easier to want a larger house in a little bit nicer neighborhood. If you own a 1978 Chevy pickup truck, you want a 1972 Chevy pickup truck because it's a better body style, right? And it's just endless in our hearts saying, man, I'm just never satisfied with what the Lord has provided. 
Paul writes and said that he learned contentment. It didn't come naturally. He learned contentment, and through Christ, he can do all things. And maybe the Lord's exposing the covetousness in our lives. Maybe he's exposing lust in our lives. That's what has come into the storehouse. We're longing for things that God hasn't provided. Maybe we're angry and that becomes this dominating thing in, in our hearts and God's wanting to replace that with his love. But allow the Holy Spirit to do that work to cleanse us for that we can take back rooms that have been given over to the enemy. Verse nine, then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And it's important when things are put out of our lives, put out of our hearts, is what's gonna be put in. And hopefully it's worship. Hopefully it's a, it's a deeper relationship with the Lord. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his fields. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and sent them in their place. Then all Judah brought their tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And we find in this text that worship and giving are restored. There's the restoration of worship and giving. Just like it's easy when we drift for the Lord for the enemy to come in, it's also easy for us to neglect worship and to neglect giving. The children of Israel, how easy it would have been for them, even though they have the temple and they they have the wall, to say, we're gonna not worship the way that we once did. When we get busy, what tends to be the first thing to go? Well, I don't have time to come to church on Sunday morning. You know, I I don't have time to come out on a Saturday night. I I don't have time to to be in a small group. I I don't have time to to go to my accountability anymore. I don't have time to be in the word. I got really busy today. No no time for prayer, no no time for worship. When was the last time we just gave our worship to the Lord? Lord, I love you. I wanna surrender my heart to you. This day uh, belongs to you. Jesus encouraged us, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Put worship first. Make a point during the day of, God, I'm giving you this time. God can do a lot with 15 minutes. Spend some time in the word. Spend some time in prayer. Spend some time in in thanksgiving. Allow that worship to be reflected in financial giving as the Lord leads. Say, I'm caring about about the work of the Lord. I want to give God the the first fruits. And Nehemiah says, this has got to be restored. This has got to be put back into place. The enemy goes out, but worship comes in. The two go hand in hand because oftentimes worship's going to be lacking in my life if I'm giving my heart over to some area of sin, some, some area of compromise. And when I allow the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to deal with that sin, deal with that compromise, cleanse that, and then take that passion, take that room in my life and move it into worship, to put off the sinful deeds, to put off the old man, put on the, the new man of Christ. That's how the Christian life, life works. In verse 13, and I appointed as treasurer over the storehouse, 
Shomiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, Padiah, and next to them was Hannah the son of Zachur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful. And their task was to distribute to their brethren. We see a shift here. It goes from Elijah, the high priest being over the storehouse, to now a group of priests that were faithful to watch over the storehouse. This intrinsically has accountability. What if one of these guys starts to go, hey, I think it'd be great to rent out part of the storehouse to Tobiah. The rest of the guys are, what? You're not gonna do that. This is set apart for the Lord. This isn't yours to, to make that decision for. When churches are set up in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles, we always see elders plural, not elders singular, because there needs to be accountability. The old saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely, it's true, isn't it? I'm so thankful for our pastoral team here, our elder team, being able to to serve together. I need that accountability. We need that uh, accountability. And when you're you're looking at a church, you want to say, is there elders in place that are working together for God's vision, for God's purposes, and walking in accountability. Nehemiah makes a, a good decision here to allow there to be a group of men that are over these storehouses. Here's Nehemiah's prayer. We see it four times in this chapter. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. It's difficult to deal with sin. It's difficult to confront sin in our lives and especially in other people's lives. It's messy. And Nehemiah is saying, God, would you please remember me for good in this? My heart was to see your temple be honored, to see worship be honored. Verse 15, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with new wine with grapes with figs and all kinds of burdens which they had brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day and I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Israel and in Jerusalem just like it's easy to neglect worship it's also easy to neglect rest So Nehemiah finds here in Jerusalem they're no longer honoring the Sabbath day. God had commanded the nation of Israel when sun goes down Friday to where it comes down on Saturday, 24-hour period, they were to rest. Now they're not honoring the Sabbath. In the New Covenant, we know that the Sabbath points to Jesus, Colossians chapter two. The Sabbath is foreshadowing Christ, it's a shadow of the reality of Christ that Christ is our rest. However, we do have the principle of rest from God's word. Not a legalistic thou shalt rest or else, but God inviting us into his rest that we have in Christ. Taking one day a week and resting. When we rest one day a week from our jobs, it shows a practical dependence upon the Lord as our provider. Why would they work seven days a week and disobey God? I'm sure if you were to ask them, we need the money. We we need this to be able to support our families. 
those that were choosing to rest, I'm sure were saying things like, we trust God to provide. I'm gonna work as hard as I can in six days and trust that God is gonna provide and I'm going to honor the Sabbath day. I find in my life, it can be easy to get into rhythms and patterns where I'm not resting, where I'm not taking one day a week to, to stop working. One of the things that we've been seeing happen for many years now is work is so much more accessible, isn't it? For a lot of us, our work is in our pockets, literally, where you're getting texts about work, you're getting emails about work. And so here it is a day off, and you're thinking, oh, but I'll just check my email, or I'll just respond to a text. And right now in the rhythm of our families, uh, Friday is the day we try to rest as a, as a family, and always on Thursday night, I'm thinking about ways that I can squeeze work in on Fridays. And I feel the Holy Spirit challenging me saying, no, you're not, knucklehead. Like, leave it alone till Saturday morning. Like, it'll be there Saturday morning. Trust me, I, I will provide. So this Friday, I took my younger two kids on a bike ride on the Santa Fe Trail. It was so fun. We got down to America the Beautiful Park and had packed lunch and had our lunch and then rode our bikes back up to the minivan and treated ourselves with some ice cream, you know. But during that time, I was getting texts. And it was so easy to want to just, I'll do this text real quick, right? And sometimes we try to do it when our families aren't looking, you know. And I had to be like, get behind me, Satan. I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna answer that, that text right now. With COVID virus, for a lot of you, work's even gotten closer because you're working from home now. And so that's a blessing, but also, it can be hard because work is always accessible to you. Choose to rest. I, I find in my life, when I rest, my relationship with the Lord is better, relationship with my family is better, and I think I'm more effective as a pastor. I think there's m more joy in my life all around, right? And I bet the same is true for you. What if you drove your vehicle and you ignored the manufacturer's specs. Things like, hey, you need to change the oil every 3,000 miles. That's so old-fashioned. Who needs that? I'm gonna blow through that. And you chose to never change the oil in your vehicle. Your vehicle's not gonna last. And God designed us, and he designed us for rest. And rest puts us in our place and puts God in his proper place. In verse 17, then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath day. He reminds them part of the reason we went into captivity is because we didn't rest. We didn't honor the Sabbath. God ended up giving the land rest for, for 70 years as they were in captivity. We have to fight for the priority of rest. Rest is not gonna just naturally happen and take place in our lives unless we fight for it. We see in verse 17 that Nehemiah, he contended with the nobles of Judah. He challenged them and said, hey, we need to be resting. And in this fight for rest, he makes practical decisions 
to put things in place. And the same will be true for us. What's gonna be different this week? If there's gonna be some rest in our lives, there's gotta be some planning. Rest is actually a discipline. If we don't discipline ourselves to, to rest, we'll find ourselves working all the time. Verse 19, so it was the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Nehemiah knew if the gates stayed open, Friday night, Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday, that they would do business. There would be buying and selling and trading that would take place. So he says, let's make this practical. I'm gonna close the gates on, on Friday night. I'm gonna set people at the gates to make sure that burdens aren't being brought in to buy and sell on the Sabbath day. So, so what gates do we need to close to be ordered to rest? Is it putting some restrictions on your phone? I got a crazy idea. What if we went and did something and left our phone at home? panic attack I know what you're thinking what if I have an emergency and I don't have my phone I bet somebody else has a phone somebody close by is probably going to have a phone that you're able uh, to use it may not be the phone issue at all for you well there's got to be some gate that needs to be closed some practical decision to say this is going to help make rest a reality in in my life Verse 20, now the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. Nehemiah wasn't gonna pray for him, you know what I'm saying? When he says, I'm gonna lay hands on you guys, like Nehemiah's like, I'm gonna physically make sure that this doesn't happen. If you guys are hanging out on the Sabbath looking to, to buy and sell, you, you need to get out of here. And Nehemiah communicated it in such a way that they're like, all right, we're, we're out of here. Cupbearer means business. <laughs> Verse 22, and I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath. He delegates to others to guard the Sabbath. You may recruit others in this discipline of rest in your family. Say, hey, hey, how can we rest? To try to model and teach this for our kids and have these conversations with our kids. Are you resting? American culture, we feel like we're being good parents if we keep our kids busy 24-7 all the time. So they're expected to go to school, they're expected to play a bunch of sports, they're expected to have a part-time job in, in high school, all of these things that, and you look at it and you go, man, I think my teen's a little burned out. I think my, my teen's a little bit overcommitted. I don't, I don't see any time where they have to, to be able to, to rest and to sit down and have that conversation as families and say, when are we gonna rest? You know, have that conversation with friends and say, hey, you know me, you, you watch my life and help me be held accountable in, in rest. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this also and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. God, please remember me for good in this. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab 
And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So in this intermarriage, there was this compromise that was taking place. They, they're marrying the nations around them that didn't know and serve the Lord, that were pulling their hearts into idolatry. And what was dominating in the homes was the culture of these other countries instead of the culture of Israel, of the one true living God. So the kids were speaking Ashdod instead of speaking Hebrew. And this is challenging for us as parents. Do our, our kids know the language of the world more than they know the, the language uh, of God? In verse 25, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. The next thing we see Nehemiah doing is getting tenacious about sexual integrity. Saying, look, this isn't what God had for the nation of Israel. God made it clear that he wanted your homes to be set apart to the, the one true living God. And he's so determined on this that he starts striking them, cursing them, and pulling out their hair, right? What's interesting about this is Ezra, his contemporary, the scribe, is faced with a similar situation and Ezra pulls out his own beard. So Ezra's grieving over the sin and he's so grieved that he rips out his own beard and then Nehemiah's ripping out other people's beards, ripping out other people's hair. So my solution is I just don't have a beard. It solves it for me. <laughs> but who's right? Who's right in this? Is Nehemiah right? Is Ezra right? They're both right. It takes both responses to sin and both are godly responses. Some people will be impacted by an Ezra. They'll go, oh, you're, you're grieved over my sin. I, I realize how my sin is hurting the heart of God by how it hurts you. I'm not gonna continue in this. Other people aren't gonna listen to an Ezra. And they need a Nehemiah in their life to take a firm stand with them and to, to be tenacious uh, with them. What we don't see Ezra and Nehemiah doing is having a Twitter war over their response. We don't see Ezra going to social media and saying, man, Nehemiah is so harsh. He should have never pulled your hair out. And you don't see Nehemiah going, Ezra's such a baby, why is he crying over this? Why is he pulling out his beard? And if we're not careful, we can look at someone else who's having a godly response to dealing with sin and we go, they're handling it wrong. You're being too merciful. You're being too harsh. And the reality of it is it takes both. It really does take both and God uses that to be able to reach the hearts of people. It's amazing to me how God's word is timeless. For us as the people of God, as we drift from the Lord, we struggle in these same ways. We give room over to the enemy. We neglect worship. We neglect rest. And we compromise in sexual integrity. What they were saying here is sex is more important than their relationship with God and it entered into this 
relationships that didn't honor the Lord. Throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, the people of God have struggled with with sexual sin. It plagued the children of Israel. Each of the epistles, as they're written, they deal with sexual sin. It's amazing to me how much Paul writes about sexual sin. And it's amazing how it's plagued the people of God in our day as well. And as we think of God cleansing our lives, cleansing our hearts, get tenacious about sexual integrity. This is going to be an, an area where the enemy and our flesh attacks. So be aware. Put up hedges. Use wisdom. Stay, stay close to the Lord. For those that are married, stay close to, to your spouse. Those that, that aren't married, to, to press into the Lord press into accountability. Maybe there's a need for repentance and sexual integrity this morning. Married couples, are you starting to flirt in your heart, in your mind, in your words, and go down this direction of someone who's not your spouse? Have you found yourself committing adultery? Have you found yourself being unfaithful to your spouse? And God, first and foremost, he calls you back unto himself. To be restored unto the Lord, to be restored unto your spouse. Maybe you're not married and you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you've accepted what the world says, hey, this is great for us to be able to be living together. And God's got something better for you. For you to make this commitment to be married to each other. Because we have to understand what God's heart and design for sexuality is. God came up with sex, Genesis 1 and 2. And he tells us that he created us male and female. Who knew that would be controversial? Right? God knew. And when he wrote his word in Genesis 1 and 2, he says, I created them male and female. It seems obvious. Why, why would he have to put that? He, he's clearly male, and he's, he's clearly, she's clearly female. I better not get that messed up. But yet God knew this was going to be contested. So, so he wrote it. He, he designed us, male and female. And inside of the commitment of marriage between a husband and wife, between a man and a woman, that's to where sex is to be expressed. And so if you're not married, you're not experiencing God's best. And you've got a choice to make to say, are we going to separate, no longer be sexually intimate with each other? Are we going to choose to get married? My all-time favorite of doing premarital counseling, pastored now for a little over 20 years, was a couple here at RMC where they were living together and they heard a message like this and they made an appointment with me. And at first when we sat down, it wasn't like total agreement. It wasn't like, yeah, we've got to move out, do premarital counseling, do this God's way, and get married. But you could see the Holy Spirit working on their hearts, and they chose to separate during their time of premarital, six to eight weeks, and see what God would do in their relationship. And the guy moved in with some, some family members, and they were so hungry during their premarital so hungry to learn about how God wanted them to do their relationship. 
And a lot of times when Amber and I do premarital, couples look at us and they go, why are we doing this? We've got this all figured out. And I want to tell them, why don't you come back and see us in two years? You've already got this figured out, you know, so Lord bless you. And then once you realize you don't have this all figured out, let's come back and talk about these things, right? And you don't know, you know, before you're married, you, you don't know. But, but this couple wasn't like that. They're like, we want to learn what God has to say. And they just soaked up the premarital. And in the six to eight weeks, they planned a wedding ceremony. And at the wedding ceremony, you could just feel the Holy Spirit going, yeah, this is good. You're committing yourselves to God and you're committing yourselves one to another. If that's where you're at, man, choose to do it God's way and see God's blessing in, in your marriage. I know it's difficult as singles and seems so old-fashioned to say, I'm going to save sex for marriage, but that's God's intent. That's his design. That's his blessing. If you're dating, choose to have these conversations to say, hey, let's rely upon the Holy Spirit to help us to be sexually pure. Pornography seems to be the plague in this area. It's easy to go, I'm not cheating on my spouse, you know, maybe we're not living together, those type of things. But somehow, in some way, pornography has been justified in your life. And because it's on a screen, somehow it's different. But it's not. God knows the heart. It's it's unfaithfulness. And God wants to purify our hearts and, and our lives. And men and women are struggling with pornography. And God in his love is saying, I've got something better for you. I've got a whole different way of being able to live. And thankful for the cross, aren't you? Because sexual sin, it brings us to our need for a savior. It brings us to the point of, Jesus, thank you so much that you didn't leave me in my sin. Jesus looked at the woman who was caught in adultery and says, go your way and sin no more. And Jesus died to forgive us, but he also is the power to be able to overcome sexual sin. So if this is in your life, to say, Lord, I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm gonna be honest with others, have those hard conversations, don't go through it alone, call the church office, we're here during the week, closed on Mondays, but open Tuesday through Friday, we'd love to walk alongside of you, but let's see God do this work. And the freedom that comes is so good and it's so glorious. The example that is given by Nehemiah is Solomon of him getting off track. Did not Solomon king of Israel sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who beloved of his God. And God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Could we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? Really strong men and women of God have fallen to sexual sin. And Solomon was so wise, but it was these relationships with pagan women that drew his heart away from God. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Hornite, therefore I drove him from me. The grandson of the high priest was married to one of the daughters of Sanballat. And Nehemiah says that this isn't gonna work and drives him out. 
Remember me, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bring the wood offering and the first fruits at the appointed time. Remember me, O my God, for good. Why does this book end this way? because it shows our need for a savior. All of scripture points to the cross and points to that we need Jesus to die for our sins. The law wasn't enough. Rules and regulations weren't enough. It also reveals our own depravity and our own circles and cycles of sin. And thankfully, Jesus did die for our sin and rise again and forgives us of our sin And what hope is there for transformation in our lives? Well, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. What hope is there that the rooms that have been given over to the enemy can be taken back? Well, Christ lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. What hope is there that worship could be restored in our lives and that we could seek first the kingdom of God. Well, Christ in you is the hope of glory. We have something that this group of Israelites didn't have and and that's the gift of the spirit living inside of us. What hope is there that God could lead us down this lifestyle of rest? That he could lead us to still waters and restore our soul? Well, it's Christ in you, the, the hope of glory. What hope is there that we could live in sexual integrity? Well, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Jesus is in you, the creator of the universe. The Holy Spirit is in us, the creator of the universe. And for us this morning to humble our hearts before the Lord, to say, God, would you search my life? Would you know me? Would you cause me to to be glorifying to you? I'm confessing my sin to you when necessary. I'm confessing it before others so they can Pray for me, and Lord, I want to see you do that transformative work in my heart and in my life. One of the things this message maybe has exposed is like, man, I understand that I'm a sinner, and I don't know if I've ever trusted Christ for salvation. That's the most important thing. Thankfully, Jesus came and died for sinners like me and like you, but we've got to make a decision. Will we repent of our sin? not justify our sin, but do a 180, turn away from our sin, and believe that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and rose again, inviting him to be the Lord of our life. I believe you know whether you've trusted Christ for salvation or not. And today, choose to say, Jesus, I need you to be my savior. Don't play games. It's not just about going to church. It's a relationship with the Lord. And whether you accept or reject Christ determines whether you go to heaven or hell. And the Bible is true. God's word is true. And heaven is real. Hell is real. God wants you to go to heaven. He wants to bring you into the kingdom. I would love to see you know Christ as your savior, to know that you have everlasting life. As we move into worship, we're gonna be available here in the front and you come, I'm I'm asking you to come down and let us know I wanna receive Christ as my savior. Also, if you need prayer in an area of your life, you're going through difficulty or there's an area of compromise, man, we're broken people that get to come before a loving father. Come and receive prayer.
It can be a long walk to come down and ask for prayer over an area of brokenness, but man, the Lord honors it. If there is an area of sin, if there's sexual sin in your life and you're choosing right now to say no to the Lord, don't do that. If you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this relationship. I'm going to keep sinning in this relationship. Know that you're missing out on something really wonderful and beautiful with the Lord. That sexual sin affects your relationship with the Lord. We can't stay in sexual sin and then go, oh man, it's going to be great with the Lord. I just sense that there's some of you this morning that you're choosing to harden your heart. And you're choosing to say, nope, I'm going to stay in this relationship. I'm going to stay in pornography. It's too hard to get out of this life of pornography. And the Spirit of God is pleading with you. You're the child of God. You've been born again. And he's got something so much better for you. And he's desiring for you to do relationships God's way. Sex is not bad. It's good. It's God's design. But he wants you to use it in the way that he created, in the way that he designed it. You think about a fireplace. And a fireplace is great as long as the logs are in the fire, right? But you get those logs out of the fireplace and it brings great destruction. So married couples, inside of marriage, man, it's blessed by the Lord. It's holy. But outside of marriage, it brings destruction. And it's the heart of a loving father that's saying, man, I've got this for you. I've got this for you. So humble your heart and say, man, I'm choosing God's way. I'm I'm choosing his path. Man, the Lord's going to bless it. There's intimacy with the Lord, but there's also calling on our lives. Who really shines in scripture that God used? Daniel and Joseph. What do we see in both of their lives? There was sexual integrity. And it's never too late to start walking in sexual purity. The Lord really used those two men. And when sexual integrity, when God allows that to be put in place in our life, then there's a testimony that's really used by the Lord. Why do you think Satan's attacking us so hard on sexual sin? Why is it that pornography is so accessible? It's not by half and chance. Satan wants to bring destruction in our lives. So what's at stake? A deeper intimacy with God and also a greater testimony. So let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we don't want to harden our hearts. Lord, we want to surrender our hearts to you. We trust you as our Father that you're good and you have good things for us. And so would you please convict us of our sin? Would you soften our hearts? Whether it's covetousness or bitterness or lust or something that we don't see, would you make us aware? And we choose to agree with you, confess our sin before you. And receive your forgiveness and your grace afresh. God, we don't have the strength in and of ourselves to live this out on our own. So, Holy Spirit, would you fill us afresh? Jesus, we look to you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.